All right, let's talk about Canto 12 of Book 3 of The Fairy Queen. This is the uh, climax of Britomart's adventures. Uh, as, as he always does, uh, Spencer gives a little quatrain that gives you a preview of the canto. Uh, the mask of Cupid and the enchanted chamber are displayed, whence Britomart redeems fair Amoret through, uh, through charms decayed. So we know what's going to happen. Now, the story in the previous couple of, of cantos has been that uh, Britomart found Scudamore, and Scudamore told her that his lady love, Amoret, had been kidnapped by the sorcerer Bizarain and taken to the house of Bizarain. And there's a was a wall of fire around the, the castle that uh, Scudamore could not pass through. But Britomart was able to pass through it. Uh, it's a, a kind of an allegory of her being able to control the fires of passion in a way that Scudamore could not. So she gets into the house of of busy rain, and we pick up here. It's it's night, and she hears in in uh, stanza one a shrilling trumpet sound aloud, sigh of nigh battle or got victory. Not therewith daunted was her courage proud, but rather stirred to cruel enmity, expecting ever where, uh, when some foe might she might descry. So it points out that, you know, there's this trumpet that might, you know, strike fear into lesser hearts, but Britomart is not afraid. And then we hear this hideous storm and earthquake that come in and stands a two. Uh, and again, yet the bold uh, Britannus was not your dread. So it, it, nothing, none of this frightens her. Uh, and then we see... Uh, the the mask of Cupid that uh, comes in in this first part of Canto 12. And notice the theatrical imagery here. The first person uh, who comes through, uh, fourth issued as on the ready floor of some theater, a grave personage that in his hand a bunch of laurel bore with comely havior and countenance sage, ye clad in costly garments fit for tragic stage. So from the very beginning, this is a theatrical presentation. Now, the the a mask was a kind of courtly theater. Uh, it was usually an allegorical story uh, with uh, the actors portraying virtues and vices, and it had a kind of little morality tale to it, uh, some kind of allegory. And usually the members of the court actually performed in the allegory. So it was kind of an interactive uh, courtly entertainment. Uh, And so this is what the Mask of Cupid is. Out comes the the presenter in stanza four. And the, the name of the presenter for this mask is Ease. So this is kind of leisure or ease. Uh, it's interesting in, when in uh, book one, there's a uh, parade of the seven deadly sins and idleness is the, the one who leads that off. So that, this, this is kind of the, the ease is kind of the gateway drug uh, to the mask of Cupid here. Uh, and it's presented, you know, as a, like a mask. And while this happens, stanza six, the wiles a most delicious harmony 
In full strange notes was sweetly heard to sound that the rare sweetness of the melody the feeble senses wholly did confound, and the frail soul in deep delight nigh drowned. And when it ceased, shrill trumpets loud did bray, that their report did far away rebound. And when they, they ceased, it gan again to play, the whiles the mask, maskers marched forth in trim array. So it's got this very enchanting uh, uh, music that is uh, seductive as well. So what Spencer is presenting here is a certain really a commentary on the idea of courtly love the mask was a courtly entertainment uh, and he is criticizing the whole idea of, of, of courtly love so the first figure allegorical figure is fancy which is what we would call imagination as a lovely boy of rare aspect and beauty without peer uh, marched Imaginable either to that imp of Troy, whom Jove did love, and chose his cup to bear, or that same dainty lad, which was so dear to great Alcides, that when he, that when as he died, he wailed woman-like with many a tear, and every wood and every valley wide, he, he filled with Hylas' name. The nymphs eke Hylas cried. So the boy is related to two mythological figures. One is Ganymede, who was the cupbearer for Jove, and the other is Hylas, whom uh, Hercules had a, uh, a crush on. Now, both of these are uh, homosexual relationships. They're kind of a beautiful young boys who were beloved of the older men. So there's already something uh, sexually suspect about fancy, and the way he is, is dressed is his garments neither uh, was of silk nor say, but painted plumes in goodly order dight, like as the sunburnt Indians do array their tawny bodies in their proudest plight. As those same plumes so seemed he vain and light, that by his gait might e easily appear. For still he fared as a dance, as dancing in delight, and in his hand a windy fan did bear, and that in the idle air he moved, moved still here and there. So he's all dressed in in feathers. You know, this is fancy is frivolous. It's like a feather in the wind. Uh, it's also like like a peacock kind of proud displaying its feathers and uh, uh, it's all for show this is not practical uh, wear so this is a kind of fancy or imagination that he's talking about uh, and with him comes uh, desire who seemed of riper years than the other swain yet was that other swain this elder sire and gave him being common to them twain so it looks like desire looks like he's older, but actually, fancy is the father of desire. Again, that's the kind of a, a commentary that Spencer is making that imagination gives birth to this kind of desire. His garment was disguised very vain, and his embroidered bonnet set awry, twinks both his hands. Few sparks he did uh, he close did strain, which still he blew and kind and kindled busily, that soon they life conceived and forth in flames did fly. 
So desire fans these flames, right? He takes a little spark and fans it into a big flame. And after him comes doubt, who was clad in a discolored coat, a multicolored coat of strange disguise that at his back a broad capucho had and sleeves dependent albanese-wise. He looked askew with his mistrustful eyes and nicely trod as thorns lay in his way or that the floor to shrink he did avise. So doubt is dressed in, in kind of academic robes, and he has these mistrustful eyes. He he walks like he's afraid he's going to step on a nail or a thorn or something, and he's always looking both ways. Doubt is is, is doubtful. He's uh, worried. Now, again, think about psychologically the progression here. So imagination gives birth to desire, but along with desire comes doubt. And with doubt uh, comes next, danger. Danger clothed in ragged weed made of bear's skins that him more dreadful made. Yet his own face was dreadful, and they did need strange horror to deform his grisly shade. Uh, A net in the one hand and a rusty blade in the other was this mischief that mishap. So danger carries two weapons, a knife and a net, and these are mischief and mishap. Uh, with the one, uh, his foes he threatened to invade, or to attack, that's the knife. With the other, he, his friends, meant to enwrap. So his, he, he uh, attacks his foes and uh, uh, enwraps in, in his friends, entraps his friends. Um, so again, think about this psychologically in terms of of courtly love. Uh, desire is not giving is not going along with pleasant things. It's coming along with doubt. Oh, you're you know plagued by doubts. There's you see danger all around. Next, of course, comes fear. Fear, all armed from top to toe, yet thought himself not safe enough thereby, but feared each shadow moving to and fro, and his own arms, when glittering, he did spy, or clashing heard, he fast away did fly. He's literally afraid of his own shadow. He hears his armor clanking and runs away. He's afraid. Um, And evermore on danger fixed his eye, so he's always worried about danger. So this is not a... a, a, uh, a healthy psychological state. And actually, it seems very accurate about what we saw with the Petrarchan conceits. This kind of emotional roller coaster where all doubt and danger and fear are part of it. Now, you do get the next one in stanza 13 is hope. With, with fear went hope. Uh, a handsome maid of cheerful look and lovely to behold. In silken samite, she was light arrayed and her fair locks were woven up in gold. She always smiled, and in her hand did hold an holy water sprinkle dipped in dew, with which uh, she sprinkled favors manifold on whom she list, and did great liking show, great liking unto many, but true love to few." So hope has the, you know, kind of dips, you know, the sprinkles of water, uh, and she sprinkles those around liberally, but they very rarely lead to true love. It's a hope that's not fulfilled. 
And next comes dissemblance and suspect. And as your note tells you, that's dissimulation, that's deceit, and suspicion. Um, So marched in one rank, yet an unequal pair. For she was gentle and of mild aspect, courteous to all, and seeming debonair, goodly adorned, and exceeding fair. Yet was that all but painted and purloined, and her bright brows were decked with borrowed hair. Her deeds were forged, and her words false coined, and always in her hand to uh, clues of silk she twined. Uh, so dissemblance looks beautiful and uh, and gentle and courteous and all that, so, but that's all a, a show. She just looks that way. Again, this kind of courtly love just looks that way. And then suspicion comes in next uh, in stanza 15. He was foul, ill-favored, and grim, under his eyebrows looking all askance, and ever at dissemblance, as dissemblance laughed on him, he lowered on her with dangerous eye-glance, showing his nature in his countenance. His rolling eyes did never rest in place, but walked each where for fear of his mischance, holding a lattice still before his face through which he still did peep, as forward he did pace. So that's suspicion, right? So he sees, he's always looking at dissemblance, looking, you know, he's suspicious of her, you know, his eyes looking sidelong at her. Next come grief and fury. Grief all in sable, sorrowfully clad, down hanging his dull head with heavy cheer, yet inly being more than seeming sad. A pair of pinchers in his hand he had, with which he pinched people to the heart, that from thenceforth a wretched life they led. In willful languor and consuming smart, dying each day with inward wounds of dolorous dart. So this is the kind of grief, the kind of love sickness, and he's got a hand, uh, these pinchers that pinch people to the heart. And then, but fury was full ill apparelled in rags, that naked nigh she did appear, with ghastly looks and dreadful dreary head, for from her back her garment she did tear, and from her head off rent her snarled hair. In her right hand a firebrand she did toss, and about her head, still roaming here and there, as a dismayed deer in chase embossed, forgetful of his safety, hath his right way lost. So here is his fury, kind of anger. Uh, again, these are the, um, the, the psychological uh, manifestations of this kind of love, this kind of love, sickness, grief, sorrow, depression, and fury, anger, lashing out. Um, after them went displeasure and pleasance. So displeasure and pleasure are there together. Uh, he, looking lumpish and full sullen sad, and hanging down his heavy countenance, she, cheerful, fresh, and full of joyance, glad, as if no sorrow she neither felt nor dread. The evil matched pair they seemed to be, an angry wasp the one in a vile had, the others in hers an unhun- uh, honey lady bee, that marched 
then uh, thus marched these six couples forth in fair degree. So here are the, the, the twin faces of, of courtly love, uh, displeasure and pleasure. One has a wasp, one has a bee. Of course, both of them can sting you. Um, they're, uh, they're, neither of them are, are really that desirable. Um, said, and after, after all these, there marched a most fair dame, led of two grisly villains, the one despite, the other clepid cruelty by name. So these two, you know, kind of cruel, despiteful figures are leading a, a beautiful lady. Uh, she, doleful lady, like a dreary sprite, clad by strong charms out of eternal night, had death's own image figured in her face, full of sad signs, fearful to living sight. Now, this lady, as we'll see, is, uh, or at least is a representation of uh, uh, Amaret. This is, she's the, the, the victim of all of this. And look what's happened to her. Her breast, all naked, as net ivory, without adorn of gold or silver bright, wherewith the craftsman wants it beautify, of her due honor was despoiled quite, and a wide wound therein, O rueful sight, entrenched deep with knife, accused keen, accursed keen, yet freshly bleeding forth her fainting sprite, the work of cruel hand, was to be seen that did in sanguine red her sil- her skin all snowy clean. So she's got this wide gash in her chest, and at that wide orifice her trembling heart was drawn forth and in a silver basin laid, quite through transfixed with a deadly dart and in her blood yet steaming fresh embayed, and these two villains, which her steps upstayed, when her weak feet could scarcely her sustain, and fading vital powers gan to fade, her forward still with torture did constrain, and evermore increased her consuming pain. Now, notice this is making literal the, the kind of stereotypical image of being struck through the heart. You know, the, you see that on Valentine's Day, the little heart with an arrow through it, which is, you know, a, a very nice, pretty little symbol. But Spencer is showing you the literalization of that. Here they have pulled her heart out of her chest and stuck an arrow through it. Uh, I mean, this is something like out of, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where they pull the guy's heart out of his chest. Um, and after her, the winged god himself. Here's Cupid. Um, notice this is a very different image of Cupid than we than we got at the end of the Garden of Adonis. Uh, that, that's something that's very typical of Spencer. His... his his allegory often uh, is shifting. Uh, a symbol will mean one thing in one context and change to mean something very different in another. So this image of Cupid, you know, comes on a lion, uh, the the that man and beast with power imperious subdueth to his ki- ki- kingdom tyrannous. He's his blindfold eyes he bade a while unbind that his proud spoil of the same dolorous fair dame he might behold in perfect kind 
which seen he much rejoiced in his cruel mind. So this is he, he's taking a kind of a sadistic delight in the the, the torture of this beautiful woman. Uh, she's fallen to his power. And the last three figures in this uh, allegorical procession are in stanza 24, reproach, repentance, shame. Reproach, the first. Shame, next. Repent, behind. Repentance, feeble, sorrowful, and lame. Reproach, despiteful, careless, and unkind. Shame, most ill-favored, bestial, and blind. So again, these are the psychological consequences of this kind of 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 masochistic uh, courtly love, according to Spencer. So you get reproach. That's self-reproach. You're going to blame yourself. Uh, then, uh, then comes shame. After you're, you reproach yourself, you feel ashamed. And then there's repentance. But notice that the repentance is feeble, feeble sorrowful, and lame. It's not very strong. And, and these three uh, kind of get interwoven together. Uh, th- there's a, a sequence to them, but they seem to be a, a constant cycle. Uh, shame lowered, repentance sighed, reproach did scold. Reproach sar- sharp stings, repentance whips entwined, shame burning bronze ir- irons in her hand did hold. All three, to each unlike, it all made w- in one mold. So these are three, again, it's kind of a, a, a vicious cycle that happens with this. So that you have, um, you, you feel reproachful. Then you have shame and you repent, but the repentance doesn't take, so you feel reproachful again and then shame and then repent. So it's this endless cycle that happens. And again, this is Spencer's critique of the kind of courtly love, Petrarchan uh, conceits kind of view of love that it's uh, it's unhealthy. Uh, there's a, a theatricality to it. That's why it's a mask. Uh, it's this cycle of uh, psychological torture. It kind of tortures you. Even the pleasance and hope are in there to uh, make things worse for you, really. Uh, now, at the end of this, the uh, there's a, a loud noise and the, the, the door slams shut. Stanza 27, soon as they were in, the door straightway fast locked, driven with that stormy blast. So there's a a conclusion, and Britomart is left there, uh, kind of trapped in the castle. But we see that uh, Britomart keeps her head. It says, stanza 28, where force might not avail, their slights and art she cast to use, both fit for hard emprise. For thy from th- that same room not to depart till morrow next, she did herself avise, when the same mask again should forth arise. So her strategy is not to try to break down the door or do it with force. She's going to be patient. Uh, and again, this shows the um, she's embodying the v- virtue of chastity, which again is not just virginity, but it's it's a proper attitude about romantic love. 
So she's able to wait. She doesn't have the kind of love sickness that the the courtly lover or the Petrarchan sonneteer would have. She's able to just kind of sit there patiently and wait it out. Um, and when when the mask starts again, the door opens and she's able to get into the next room of the castle. Uh, so we see in stanza thirty. So soon as she was entered. Round about she cast her eyes to see what was become of all those persons which she saw without. But lo, they straight were vanished all, and some no living white she saw in all that room, save that same woeful lady, both whose hands were bounden fast, that did her ill become, and her small waist girt round with iron bands upon a brazen pillar, brassen pillar, by which by the which she stands. So she gets in, all of the allegorical figures are gone, but the lady is still there. And so is the, in stanza 31, the vile enchanter uh, sat figuring strange characters of his art. With living blood, he those characters rat, dreadfully dropping from her dying heart seeming transfixed with a cruel dart, and all perforce to make her him to love. Ah, who can love the worker of her smart? A thousand charms he formerly did prove, yet thousand charms could not her steadfast heart remove. So here the vile enchanter, this is, is a busy rain, is trying to cast spells to make her fall in love with him. He's the one who's kind of removed her heart, and but he can't. He can't really do it. He, he's trying and torturing at her with that. But as as he says, as Spencer says, who can love the worker of her smart? Who who is going to love the person who's torturing them? Um, and soon as that virgin knight he saw in place, his wicked books in his, in haste he overthrew and draws out a murderous knife out of his pocket drew, the which he thought for villainous despite in her tormented body to imbrue. But the stout damsel to him leaping light, his cursed hand withheld and mastered his might. So he's he's got a knife. He's going to uh, stab uh, uh, Amaret, but Britomart leaps up and grabs the knife away. And in Stanza 33, uh, Bizarain turns the knife on Britomart, uh, and it struck it into her snowy chest, that little drops empurpled her fair breast, exceeding wroth therewith the virgin grew, albe the wound were nothing deep impressed, and fiercely forth her myrtle blade she drew, to give him the reward for such vile outrage due. So, you see, he's trying, in its way, his, what, what he's done to uh, Amaret is cut her chest open and tear her heart out. Now he turns the knife on Britomart, and all it makes is a little scratch. It, it doesn't really hurt her. It just makes her mad. And she'll, she draw, you, you're drawing a knife? Well, look, here, I've got my sword. So this is the, the uh, idea that uh, the virtue of chastity cannot be touched by the, the sorcery of this kind of, of courtly love. It's, it's too strong. So Britomart knocks him to the ground and almost kills him, but Amaret speaks up uh, because she says in, in stanza 34, None but he which wrought it could the same recur again, therewith she stayed her hand. So uh, uh, 
Bizarrein is the only one who can take away this spell uh, from that has you know pulled her heart out of her chest. Um, and so Brynomart says to him in stanza thirty-five, "Thou wicked man, whose meed for so huge mischief and vile villainy is death, or if that ought to do death exceed, be sure that naught may save thee fr- from to die. But if that thou this dame do presently restore unto her health and former state, this do and live, else die undoubtedly." So she's telling him, "You've got, you've got to free her from this enchantment, or I'm going to kill you right here." Uh, and, and notice that you know Britomart is no nonsense about this. She's she's takes charge. She's completely in control. Uh, she's able to to dictate the terms here. Uh, again, because she is the embodiment of true chastity. Uh, she she isn't afraid or cowed by Busy Rain's uh, courtly Petrarchan love. And as Busy Rain removes the spell, the, the, there's another earthquake, the house quakes, but again, Britomart is not upset. And, and we see in stanza 38 that the wide wound which lately did dispart her bleeding breast and riven bowels gored was closed up as it had not been bored and every part to safety full sound, as she was never hurt, was uh, soon restored, though when she felt herself to be unbound and perfect whole, prostrate she fell unto the ground. So it's, uh, she's healed, but she's just kind of overwhelmed, she faints. Um, And she says to Britomart, Ah, noble knight, what worthy meed can wretched lady, quit from woeful state, yield you in lieu of this, your gracious deed? Your virtue self, her own reward shall breed, even immortal praise and glory wide, which I, your vassal, by your prowess freed, shall through the world make to be notified, and goodly well advance that goodly well was tried." Now, notice that Amaret, there's some uh, echoes here in Amaret's language of those Petrarchan ideas. Uh, she's uh, uh, bowing before uh, Britomart. She's going to make give immortal praise the way that sonneteers say that they will for their ladies. Um, that, you know, how can I repay you for this? Um, in a way, there's a, there's a sense that Maybe Amaret hasn't fully learned the lesson yet. And notice that uh, Britomart's response, is, is she kind of you know, uh, denies this. She says, no, don't, uh, I, I don't need any reward for my labors. I, I, you know, virtue is its own reward. And she reminds her that the, the one who's really suffered is Scudamore, her, her lover. Uh, so she's going to take uh, uh, Amaret to him. Uh, stanza 41 she much was cheered to hear him mention it that is uh, Scudamore whom of all living whites she loved best then laid the noble championess strong hand upon the enchanter which her ha- which had which her had distressed so sore and with foul outrages oppressed with that great chain with not long ago he bound that piteous lady prisoner now released, himself she bound, more worthy to be so, and captive with her led to wretchedness and woe. 
So the poetic justice, the chain that uh, uh, Bizirain used to uh, entrap Amoret is now used to imprison him. It's kind of turned back on him. Uh, again, that's also a kind of a, a, a critique of the the psychology of Petrarchan love that it, it's uh, it, it turns back and hurts the person who tries to use it. And when they leave the castle, they say at the, at the porch uh, stands forty two those dreadful flames. She also found delayed and quenched quite like a consumed torch that erst all enters want so cruelly to scorch. So again, before Britomart had to pass through this wall of fire to get in the castle, but now that wall of fire is gone. Uh, it, it's been she's, which suggests that she's completely triumphed. The the passions, the fires of this kind of love, are are gone entirely. Now the very end of uh, Canto Twelve is in two different versions. The footnote will show you this. Uh, the version they give. The one they give in the main text is the version from the final uh, printed edition of the Fairy Queen. It had uh, six books completed of the the twelve that uh, Spencer had planned, and it leaves off on a cliffhanger because they get out and they're looking for Scudamore and uh, 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 Britomart's squire, her her nurse. Uh, and says neither of them she found where there where she them lore, and stanza forty five. His expectation to despair did turn, misdeeming sure that her those flames did burn. So, Scudamore has given up. Uh, he's gone away, and in book four of the Fairy Queen, uh, you get the reunion of uh, Scudamore and Amaret, though it takes a few more twists and turns. But in an earlier version, when the the first three books were published on their own, uh, Spencer gave a a happy ending to the story uh, where the two of them are are united. You see it in the the footnote there. Uh, Lightly he clipped her, twinkled his arms twain, and straightly did embrace her her body bright. Her body, late the presence of sad pain, now the sweet lodge of love and dear delight. But she, fair lady, overcomen quite, of huge affection did in pleasure melt, and in sweet ravishment poured out her spite, her sprite, no words they spoke, no earthly thing they felt, but like two senseless stocks in long embracement dwelt. So you get the... Uh, the reunion of them there, but then he changed that when he went on and wrote book four because he wanted to extend the story. All right, well, that's uh, that's the last of the pieces that we're reading of the Fairy Queen. And I know we've read a, a lot of kind of disconnected bits of, of the Fairy Queen. Uh, there just wasn't time in the schedule to read a, a, a you know, to read all of it, or even a full book of it. But I wanted to give you a, a taste, a, a sample of the way that Spencer's allegory works. Uh, that he has the way he uses these allegorical figures to represent his ideas, and kind of in, in this uh, canto to show the the psychology of a certain kind of love and how it can be overcome uh, by true chastity. Um, it, it's a, a, a very interesting to trace out, you know, when you read all of the Fairy Queen, how he develops those ideas. 
and again, his his allegory tends to be a lot more subtle and flexible than uh, kind of a rigid one-for-one correspondence. And by having it be a narrative and a story, he can develop and work out ideas about things in a more organic way. Uh, it's a very interesting approach that that he has, and uh, you know, also just very creative. It's, it's full of all of the kinds of the uh, the, the magic of, of Arthurian romance as well. So I hope that you've enjoyed it at least a little. Uh, next time we're going to look at the first half of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. So I'd like you to read from the beginning through scene six. Uh, now, uh, Faustus is the story of a man who sells his soul to the devil, the, the demon Mephistopheles. Uh, and I want you to think as you're, a couple of things to look out for as you're reading this section. First of all, you'll see in the first scene that there's a long soliloquy that Faustus has about what he's going to, what he's been studying, what he should study next, and look at what his arguments are, why he rejects all of the subjects he rejects, and why he settles on magic, on dark magic, as the thing that he should uh, focus on. Uh, think about what that reveals about his character. And look, too, at the conversations that he has with Mephistopheles. Uh, What kind of arguments is he getting into with Mephistopheles, the the demon that he summons? Uh, And who's in control in this relationship? Who who is the the dominant one in their, uh, their partnership? And does that change at any point? Uh, another thing to look at and think about are the the, the subplot. Uh, this, this was very common in Elizabethan drama that there would be a, a main plot, the main characters, and then there would be a, a, a sub a comic subplot. And this has that. And in alternating scenes, you'll see uh, Faustus' servant and things that are happening to him. And I want you to look and think about how the scenes in the subplot are reflections on or commentaries on what's going on in the main plot with Faustus and Mephistopheles. How is Marlowe using that to kind of uh, give us information, more information or a more well-rounded picture about what he's talking about in the main story? Uh, so those are just a couple of things that you can uh, look at for the first half of Dr. Faustus. Uh, we'll discuss that next time. Uh, if you have questions about that or anything else, uh, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.